This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. I was under the hood at the time and my chief pilot reached out for the controls and turned to the aircraft and dove down as fast as he could. And we ended up hitting something. We lost three feet of our wing and had no aileron control whatsoever. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Gabrielle Palmas. Gabrielle is a commercial multi-engine pilot with an instrument rating. She's got about 400 hours total and she's been flying since she was in high school. She's flown a variety of airplanes. She's got a tailwheel endorsement and a high performance and complex endorsements as well. Her ultimate goal is to end up in aerial firefighting. Right now, she's working with flight safety as second in command on a Lear 60. Gabrielle, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You were in an interesting situation, and you and I were uh, were chatting about it. Not too many people have survived a midair. You did. Can you tell us all about that? Absolutely. So thankfully, not many 300-hour pilots have experienced talking to the FAA and the NTSB. But um, in October of 2012, I found myself in that exact situation. To give some background, I fly out of Phoenix, and a few different airports here where we have some of the best flying weather in the United States and in the world. So with that comes a whole bunch of traffic, air traffic. We have eight general aviation airports within 30 nautical miles of each other. And there's a lot of international students here with training academies. And Things tend to get busy when it's a beautiful day outside. Yeah, very busy area. You've got all the GA airports you've mentioned. You've, of course, got Phoenix International. And just outside of that, you've got Luke Air Force Base, which is a training base for the Air Force. So it is a busy area. Everybody trying to take advantage of that beautiful Arizona weather. And along with that, um, we have very limited approaches that we can do when it comes to training. So there's only one ILS in the area that we're really allowed to navigate by. And the only other two are at Phoenix Sky Harbor and over at Gateway Airport. So along with that, we have a lot of intense training traffic heading down south to this one particular airport, Casa Grande, and their ILS system. When 
we're transitioning through these areas. On top of that, we have practice areas. And so it gets to be a little crazy when it comes to all of these training academy airplanes in one spot. So there I was. I was up on a training flight with my chief pilot on a stage check to progress to my next step of training in my instrument. And as we were flying and transitioning out of the practice area and heading toward the airport for a practice approach, we were in that scary spot where you're not talking to either frequency yet. You're in the process of changing. You're in the process of getting yourself situated for an approach. So there's a lot happening. I was under the hood at the time, and my chief pilot reached out for the controls and turned to the aircraft and dove down as fast as he could. And we ended up hitting something. And my initial thought was maybe we hit an airplane, but I'm thinking birds. Birds are probably going to be the best scenario here, right? Birds. It's fine. Just birds. And he told me calmly, I need you to take your hood off and I need you to look around to see if you see them. So there he was with the thought process of, oh my gosh, we hit another airplane with people inside of it. Wow. Now that's another level of intensity there. You're under the hood. You feel an impact. The instructor says, take your hood off. And now you take the hood off. You're just trying to gain total SA on on now having vision and where are you? And I, I can't imagine that. There was a fear of looking out to the right side. I can tell you that. <laughs> Why is that where you felt the thump come from? Yes. Okay. So the impact was from the right side of the wing. We lost three feet of our wing in a Piper Warrior and had no aileron control whatsoever after that. So not only were we trying to see if the other party survived, we were also trying to figure out what do we do now? Do we get this aircraft on the ground as soon as possible? Yes. Okay. Do we head straight toward the airport? Because at that point we were aligned directly toward the Chandler Airport where we're based. Or do we make smaller turns to head toward an abandoned airstrip that's on reservation land, not really monitored by anybody, but also much closer to us and less traffic possibilities? Because we were also thinking, okay, it's just the wing, but it could also be the landing gear. It could be the engine stopping at any moment. We don't know what else has been impacted. About what altitude were you guys in terms of AGL when the collision occurred? We were at about 4,000 feet. Okay. And it's a, an awkward altitude to be at because you're in the process of shooting a practice approach and not yet on with approach, but you're right at that altitude that's, you know, should you be at the 500s or should you be at the thousands? What are we doing here? So that was the most difficult struggle for us too, is that it's a transition point where you're descending from one altitude to another. But with us, we had just leveled off to start the approach and start talking to air traffic control. So I remember us dialing in, instead of contacting approach, we contacted our local tower because we figured that the local tower might have these guys up on their radar and they have a better internal contact to get down to our flight school and emergency services in the local area at Chandler versus talking to Phoenix approach, which was much further away. So all of these split second decisions were being made we didn't want to fly over houses. Uh, we're dealing with an airstrip in the middle of nowhere versus an airport, but the airstrip is closer. And <laughs> how do we do this? We manipulate the airplane just using rudder. So I can tell you I am beyond grateful. I wouldn't be here today if my chief pilot had not been the one in the airplane with me because this man 
flies Great Lakes, he flies pits, he flies aerobatic, and knows exactly the limitations of an aircraft, especially in a state like this. So immediately, of course, he was on the controls. And once we landed, um, we couldn't use any flaps, obviously, coming in because the aileron had been jammed so much into the flap system. And we just took every precaution. You're sitting there thinking about going back to the basics when something like this happens. You're cracking the door open just like you're taught in training. Your hands on the fuel selector valve to make sure that you're shutting that off as soon as you touch down. You just go into that mode that we all practice for over and over again in emergency training as student pilots all the way up to professionals. Now, at any point, did you ever see the other airplane? We never did. Air traffic control finally told us about a minute before we landed that they were able to see them squawking 7700. So at least we knew at that point that they were alive before we landed. Okay, but you hear the collision. You never do see them. You're focused on flying your own airplane. The instructors got control of the airplane. Did you guys do a controllability check? Talk to us about now you've got this airplane, you make the decision to go into Gila River Memorial, I think you mentioned, on, on the reservation. Was it relatively close to you? Were you just a few miles away from the airport at that time? We were. So we were just a few miles to the southeast of the airport. So perfectly lined up with the Chandler Airport that we were tracking back to. So it took us about 50 to 90 degree turn. I can't remember the exact amount in order to get lined up with the runways that are over at Gila River. For us during that time, it was a matter of, okay, let's take a look, see what we can actually do with the airplane. Okay, the rudders are fine. The ailerons can't do it. Okay, what about flap controls? Nope, totally jammed. Can I ask you, did you know the ailerons were ineffective because you tried to use them and couldn't? Or did you just look out at them and decide we're not even going to try that? Nope. We tried to move the yoke around and nothing was working. You could move the yoke from full left to right and nothing was working. Got it. So no aileron control, but you do have good pitch control and good rudder control. And of course, uh, the engine's still operating normally. Correct. Yes. Okay. And you're at 4,000 feet above the Gila River Memorial. So you're looking at the map here. You do what looks like probably a left-hand turn and begin descending towards Gila River Memorial. Is that right? Correct. It was get it on the ground as fast as you can. Power back to idle since we have zero flaps. Worst case scenario, if we're high, we can slip it and just pray at this point <laughs> that we get this thing on the ground safe and sound. Did you have to do much turning or you ruddered over in the direction of Gila River and you were pretty much set up on a final approach there or how did you guys do that? We were essentially on a long final at this point, enough time to get stabilized and pay attention to how we were really going to muscle this onto the ground. And how did you do that? Did you fly a pretty fast final because you were worried? I mean, who knows what your real stall speed is now with three feet of your wing missing out on the right side, right? How'd you handle that approach speed? From what I remember, I remember um, my chief keeping it pretty straightforward and us just saying, you know what, doesn't matter how long it takes us to get us stopped. We're going to aim toward the beginning of the runway. It's a relatively long runway because this airport at one point was used for aerial firefighting. So they still have some DC-6s that are there just kind of abandoned. So we knew we had a lot more room to work with and no houses on either end, unlike the Chandler Airport. So we figured 
we just need to get it close to the ground. We'll get it on the ground. And then however long it takes us to get stopped and situated, we'll figure that out as we go. Yeah. So it sounds like you kept your speed up. You came down in, realized you had a long runway. The winds can get pretty strong out there in Arizona. Were the winds a factor at all? Thankfully not, because this was October. So October is some of our most mild weather in Arizona. It's the transition period between when we get all of those storms coming in, the monsoon season has wrapped up for the most part, and then October becomes that 70-degree weather until we reach March. (laughs) Yeah, beautiful time of year to fly out there. And so uh, that was the lucky break for you that it happened there when you're not worried about the heat or the wind or density altitude too much. So you guys came down on final, kept your airspeed up, you come over the runway, and then just from there, as normal as he could make it, a roundout flare and touchdown? Correct. Yep, as normal as we could make it. And as soon as we got on the ground, immediately shut everything down, fuel selector valves turned off, and get out of the airplane as fast as we can, just in case. And I can't tell you how fast we both dropped to the ground just to make sure that both of us were okay (laughs) and that, you know, okay, we're on the ground. It's fine. Now we can start thinking about everything that comes along with this. Yeah. Wow. It just amazing how fast things went from you're under the hood, setting up for an approach, you hear a loud noise and then everything changes. I'm just curious, was the noise loud? Was the impact hard when you, you were under the hood? So all you had were your senses Tell us what that impact was like, what you remember about it. It very much feels like a car accident would. At that point, you feel the impact. And for us, obviously, because it was on the right side of the wing, we yawed to the right immediately. And that was it. You know, it was such a quick thing, very much like um, somebody rerending you would be. That feeling combined with being under the hood immediately, I thought, oh, maybe we're practicing unusual attitudes. Is this something that we're doing? (laughs) Really? Yeah. And then I felt the impact because his controls were so drastic in his change. And we were head on with the other aircraft. We find out later um, with the FAA and the NTSB that they were level at 4,000 feet and headed in the exact opposite direction, 220 instead of R040. And where were they coming out at? Had they departed Chandler? They departed out of Falcon Field, just north of Chandler. And with Falcon, and especially Chandler's Class Delta airspace, they were in a a part or a zone of transition where you don't have to be speaking to anyone. And then they had just climbed up to 4,000 feet to start heading down south to go shoot approaches at Casa Grande. So this was another flight school and another student and another pilot, another flight instructor. So basically a head-on collision at the same altitude, and obviously it was kind of a right-to-right pass. They came off your right side, you came off their right side. Do you know, did your two wings clip? Did their propeller hit your wing, or or do you know? So the impact, um, and this is also on pictures that you can look up as well, had we done the traditional both turn right if you see each other, we wouldn't be here talking today. And so my chief pilot thought, what is the least amount of surface that we can try to impact at this point because we are going to hit? So that's why he decided to turn left and dive down as fast as he could. So it was just our wing. Our right wing was actually wedged into their left wing 
So we hit wing to wing on that side, if that makes sense. So our entire fuselage had gone just underneath their airplane. And our wing piece, our almost three feet of wing, stayed wedged in their wing. They were flying a, a Piper Archer. And our wing stayed wedged in their wing and never went past the second spar, the rear spar of their wing. So thankfully, they were able to keep flying. But this would also, again, be a very different equation had we hit maybe five knots faster, 10 knots faster. Hey, listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. So once the impact happened, you headed off to um, the Gila River Memorial right beneath you, and they continued on south and would end up landing at a uh, race, some kind of test racetrack out there in the desert. Isn't that right? That's correct. So rather than land in the middle of the desert somewhere on the highway, they chose to land on a racetrack. One can only put themselves into that position and say, what would you do? Would you land in the middle of the desert not knowing who would be near you to come pick you up? Would you land on a highway and risk flying around people going 80 miles per hour on Highway 10? Or would you put yourself on a test track where you knew that someone might be available and you knew that it was just close enough to civilization to get rescued, if you will. Right. And I also adhere to the principle that my emergency should never be somebody else's disaster. So for that reason, I personally think I would shy away from roads and places where there's population as much as I possibly can if it's a, if it's a safe choice to make. So you can understand why they made that decision. And in their cockpits, they're doing the same thing, realizing that they have this sudden impact and then making very quick decisions on on how to deal with their airplane. It kind of illustrates how hard it is. I think one of the most difficult places to see an airplane is head-on. And one of the things we learn in mid-air collision avoidance classes is that your eye picks up movement. And so it's challenging that the most dangerous airplane to us in terms of other airplanes in the sky are the ones that are on a collision course to us because they're so difficult to see because our eye is trained to see movement. And if they're staying in the same spot on the canopy, then you're not going to see that movement, and it makes them even that much more difficult to see. And in your case, this was a head-on pass, so you've got really probably the lowest profile that the airplane has in terms of your ability to see it. So here you are, head-on pass, difficult to see, and they're coming right at you, so there's no movement, and it'd be very difficult for all of you to pick that movement up. Not only that, but their closure rate was very different as well. Um, we were flying at 90 knots. They were flying at cruise. So you can imagine a cruise and an arrow versus a warrior that's about to shoot an approach. You're coming at one much faster. And so you guys have a closing speed of somewhere in the neighborhood of probably 250 plus miles an hour. What time of day was this? Was sun angle uh, a, an issue at all, do you think, for them to pick you up? Thankfully not. Um, this was about, I would say, 10 o'clock in the morning. I don't remember too much other than my chief pilot having to stay out with the airplane and the FAA and NTSB for the rest of that day. 
And thankfully, I had uh, my actual instrument instructor, my CFII, up with another student, and he was listening to all of this. So his first reaction was, stop what you're doing with the student, fly down, make sure that the other guys were okay, that they landed safely. And then from that point, come over to pick us up because we were on this abandoned strip. We didn't know who would be dispatched at this point. After declaring an emergency, you would assume that emergency services would come up, but it's all dependent upon now reservation and who from the reservation will come up and what police departments will be involved. So there was a lot to that decision-making process as well. And they ended up landing next to us on that airstrip as well so that we had a way to get out. And I ended up flying back to Chandler Airport with my instructor and his student after the fact. So when you look at some of the pictures, you can see that the news helicopters were dispatched because of the emergency um, service and the frequencies that they use. So the news helicopters were taking pictures of all of us. And you can see that there's a reservation cop as well, (laughs) whose initial reaction was, you can't practicing here. Why are you guys landing here? (laughs) I was going to ask you about that because reservations can be tricky. It sounds like uh, once they understood it was an emergency and you were in distress, they were very cooperative in letting another airplane come in and pick you up. And sounds like that all went well. Absolutely. And we also had uh, the wonderful support, too, of the Chandler Police Department. So the Chandler Police Department were the first people to show up. And I remember uh, this cop coming up to us and saying, hey, this isn't our jurisdiction, but we just wanted to make sure you were okay and you weren't needing you know, life support or life help at this point. So we'll make sure that we pass it off to the right agency, but just checking on you. What an experience. So what were your lessons learned as you think back on this whole experience that we can all learn from? And that's the most difficult thing, Richard. I was almost angry whenever someone would ask me that question initially. What lessons have you learned? Because the hardest part is that when you've just been in an accident, you don't know what you've learned from it until after you've evaluated it yourself. And it took me months, if not years, to evaluate myself. And it was because the investigation was ongoing for so long. So with the FAA and the NTSB, everyone is so uh, fearful of these organizations. But I can tell you that they were tremendous to work with because even though they wanted our stories and I couldn't speak to the one person who would understand what I'd been through, my chief pilot, it was still very much a what can we do for you? What do you need? And it was a consistent call over months afterward asking us what we needed. If, if we needed anything, did we need someone to talk to? Following up on PTSD in case we had PTSD from this entire event. And the investigation stayed open for a very long time because nobody knew really who to place blame with. And that is a very tricky thing for them to deal with as well. I mean, immediately the FAA and NTSB look into, okay, what's the cause of the accident? How did it happen? How can we solve this? And for us, we couldn't really place any blame. When I look at what we learned from this, I think of more what we did right, that we prioritized what we needed to do in those four minutes, that we focused on the issues at hand and went back to basics, fly the airplane that we communicated to air traffic control, 
because there are so many times that you hear pilots who just fall silent on frequencies when something happens instead of reaching out to those who can help or who can be a resource to you and that we communicated with each other because that's also something that comes up on cockpit voice recorders. All of a sudden it comes into what are we doing? Your controls, who's flying the plane? Uh, This is too much. Too many things are going wrong. And we don't hear the clear, okay, go back to the checklist, go back to this, what can we do? And I feel like we stopped the chain of events before getting it much worse or much deeper by trying to get on the ground as fast as we could and communicating as much as we could before getting to that ground where we couldn't talk to anybody except for on our cell phones. Yeah, I share with you those sentiments about the lessons learned primarily being things you guys did right. Here's a case where everybody's doing everything right. You guys are just out doing training. You're under the hood. You've got your safety pilot who, oh, by the way, happens to be a flight instructor and the chief pilot. The other people are in their airplane doing the same thing. You're just in crowded airspace, and it really brings up the limitations of the see and avoid concept. I fly VFR a lot, and oftentimes I have to fly without flight following because I'm too low or they can't pick me up or for whatever reason. And you really don't realize until you start incorporating ADS-B in into your cockpit just how much more traffic there is than what you actually see. Absolutely. I mean, this was 2012, so this was right about the time when the Stratix and Stratus and things like that were coming out and really being used. Not very many people had Garmin 530s and things like that. So for us to hear even that the other aircraft had traffic collision avoidance, however, there's so many airplanes that fly around that area that it, it gets to be exhausting to try to instruct and have that barking at you. So it was a good lesson for them as well, I'm sure, that, okay, you need to start paying attention to this. <laughs> Maybe don't turn the volume down on radios, turn it up, if anything, and just try to figure out how you can multitask with a student in this airspace. Some of the other things that I picked up on from your experience are it sounds like your instructor having just seen an airplane coming straight at you immediately takes a control, goes into evasive maneuvers, doesn't quite make it and hits the other airplane. And yet all through that just maintains his calm, maintains his demeanor, It sounds like to me from listening, you tell the story, you felt you were confident he was there and felt like that he was in total control of the situation. And I remember him telling me afterward, and I I never thought about this at the time because you don't think to panic in these situations. And so he told me afterward, because you were so calm in the airplane and you had zero reaction and you were just, let's get this done, it helped me to maintain my sanity as well. You know, I have found that to be the case so much that the crew will feed off of each other. One person's calm demeanor in a cockpit will have an influence on another one's, and they both fall into that kind of rhythm. I've also seen it go the other way. Well, somebody gets a little bit high-strung, a little bit high-spirited, and that tends to be contagious in a cockpit as well. And if I can touch on one last concept, out of our accident came a a good deal of information for local pilots. And I highly recommend this to anybody who's going into a very high traffic area. Our local organizations and flight schools got together and formulated the Arizona Flight Training Work Group. And they actually created a four-flight and Garmin GPS overlay with practice area information. 
So if you are transitioning through that area from corporate pilot all the way down to a recreational pilot, you know exactly where that traffic is coming in and out of and what frequencies they're communicating on. Yeah, helpful. Thank you for pointing that out. Gabrielle, going back a little bit, what did the FAA or the NTSB say in terms of their investigation? What were their findings? So with the enactment of the Pilots' Bill of Rights, the FAA and NTSB were both performing their investigations, but after six months, they both came to the determination that they didn't want to pull any of our certificates because technically, and this is all you know, paperwork, but I was the pilot in command, even though I was under the hood, technically. So what do you do in that case? Do you blame the pilot in command? Do you blame a flight instructor? Do you blame the other students? So it was very hard for them to determine which certificates might be of consideration. So after lengthy communication with all of us, they said, you know what, we're not pulling anyone. I think that this was just a fluke. And I think that we just need to make sure that this is a lesson for everybody who reads up on this. So we are not placing blame. We're not taking anyone's certificates. We're not going into any further investigation. I'm happy to hear that because nobody was doing anything criminal. Nobody was willfully or blatantly violating any rules or actually violating any rules at all. What you had was somebody under the hood taking training. You had a safety observer there who was looking out. But we talked about the difficulties and just how hard it would be to pick up that kind of traffic visually as is indicated by the fact that three people, you're under the hood, but you had somebody in your right seat, there are two other pilots in the other airplane, and those three pilots didn't see each other coming head-on. Very difficult to see another airplane coming uh, head-on to you like that. So I'm happy to hear that the NTSB and the FA looked at it and came to that realization that there really is no benefit in taking any kind of enforcement or punitive action uh, on anyone. Right, and they were extremely supportive in the process, even though it's something that we all fear talking to the FAA or the NTSB, they became a resource of, okay, how fast should I be getting back up into the air again? Do I want to be getting back up into the air again? And to hear someone from the pilot's perspective, but also from the government perspective saying, you need to get into an airplane as fast as you can so that you can start the healing process and determine whether or not you're going to fly ever again was just very enlightening. How long after this incident uh, before you were back flying and did you go through some kind of anxiety about that? Very much so. I was encouraged about two days later by the owner of the flight school to go up with our assistant chief pilot and just take an airplane up and fly around and see if I could do it again. And I didn't resume my professional instrument training until about a month or two months after. And each day I went to the flight school, the most difficult part was looking at the airplane and seeing it on a bed of a truck, just waiting for a new wing, waiting for a spar box to be replaced and seeing it back, being brought back onto the flight line afterward as well. And my chief pilot was about the same time frame because we were so busy answering questions from both agencies that we both took about a month off to discuss everything, to make sure that we were okay. And immediately afterward, I called a counselor and I set up 
some sessions just to discuss what PTSD looks like, because it can be something that we don't expect. It doesn't necessarily have to be a full-on panic attack. It can be something similar to what I had. I came down with hypervigilance. I could tell you the last three people that walked through a grocery store door, you know, or a restaurant door, and it became very prevalent on the airplane. I was looking at every passenger in a different way now as far as who could help me in an emergency instead of just somebody coming on the aircraft to sit down and enjoy their flight. So I highly encourage anybody who's been in some sort of situation or accident to seek that out, even with just a counselor, to talk through it instead of keeping it bottled up, because I think that's much, much worse in the long run. Yeah, I'm thankful that just our society in general as a whole is much more appreciative of counseling and the benefits of counseling in in many respects. And it certainly seems like in this case here, it was beneficial to you. Yes. And six months later, almost to the day, I took my check ride with that same chief pilot in that same airplane, (laughs) just with a new wing. (laughs) Well, we're thankful that you got down safely. We're thankful that the other pilots did as well. And thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, talk about a harrowing situation. You're underneath the hood and you hear that impact and you suddenly you've been in a midair. And there's a case where you illustrate people trying to do everything right. You've got somebody under the hood. You've got the safety pilot. And it's so very difficult to pick up an airplane coming at you head on. And maybe that's one of the lessons learned for many of us who do fly in that right seat. And most of us have at some time or another with another pilot as the safety pilot is just how hard it is to see airplanes that are on a collision path with you. You really can't afford to take your eyes out of a visual scan for traffic more than just a few seconds at a time because that's how long you're going to have to pick up the airplane, identify it, and then take evasive maneuvers. You have to really admire the calm demeanor at which they went about their emergency and then handled it from there and got the airplane on the ground safely. And we're so thankful that she survived it, as did her safety pilot and the two pilots in the other airplane, and a great response from the NTSB and the FAA, both taking a real hard look at it and realizing that you had people executing the best that they could with the best of intentions, and sometimes accidents happen. Thank you for joining us on this edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm the host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. If you're enjoying these podcasts, hit the subscribe button and recommend us to your friends. If you can, consider a donation at aopafoundation.org. That's aopafoundation.org. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.